legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, attorney Kim Hegwood with Hegwood Law Group and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning. Welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood. We have a very special guest today, uh, Angie Burke. Welcome, Angie. Thank you for having me. Uh, Angie has a company called Just Pick Up the Peg, A Nurse's Journey Back from a Stroke. And so uh, I guess the title kind of says it all in in the sense of um, I'm assuming you were a nurse and then had the stroke based on the on the title. And so um, you're very young. uh, You know, so um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what was your life like before the stroke? Because you've had it obviously at a very young age. Um, yes, I was actually 46 when I had my stroke. Um, I didn't have one risk factor for stroke, so it kind of hit out of the blue. But life before stroke was, like many people at that age, completely insane. I was working shift work, so I was trying to balance night shifts and um, sometimes working two or three jobs to make ends meet. I have two children and at the time my oldest was in college so we were traveling back and forth with care packages and to take him grocery shopping. My youngest was in high school so I often said I felt like a taxi driver constantly taking them to you know part-time job and various activities um, after working all night so life was pretty chaotic and along with that there was all the activities that you need to do to keep a home running groceries etc. So I was always always on the go. So I would imagine that that having a stroke at a very young age was um, very shocking. Um, And I would almost would think that, um, because I think with most people, um, I know when my my grandfather had his stroke, um, he got depressed. And so um, how did did it affect you in, in the sense of, um, because it's a drastic change in your life. And so so how did it affect you? Um, initially, I was full of fight when I was in the rehab hospital and I was going to beat this. And when I got home, it was a harsh dose of reality because then I had to face up to the deficits that I was left with and just how drastically my life was going to change. So similar to the situation you just described, I ended up, ended up falling into a major depression And it actually spiraled to the point where I had to be admitted to hospital for treatment um, for the depression. So a lot of people have, you know, that have different things that, you know, that happen. You you know, you're hospitalized for your depression. And I'm so sorry for all of that. And so, but what did you do to get back from that? Uh, A lot of it was obviously the treatment that I received. And initially I had resisted going to counseling because I said, you know what, I'm strong, I can beat this. And what's counseling going to do? They're not going to change what's happened to me. The stroke will have still happened, but it taught me coping mechanisms and things to do to help me get through that. And eventually, I guess when I got through the worst of it, I realized that this was all up to me the doctors, the nurses, the psychologists um, could give me every tool that they had in their toolbox. But 
if I was going to try and get ahead of this, the depression along with the stroke, I was the one that had to put in the work. And that's when I started to move forward and get back that fight that the depression had stolen from me. So, so tell our listeners a little bit about what neurofatigue is. I think it's very important we talk about neurofatigue because unless you've experienced it, people don't understand how debilitating it, it can be. And it frustrates me because I hear a lot of stroke survivors have family members, um, friends, etc., refer to them as lazy or they're not trying enough. And I and anybody. Uh, even without a brain injury, has mental fatigue. Um, you know, at the end of the day, your brain is tired. But someone like myself who has a brain injury, my brain is already working harder to compensate for the area that was permanently injured from the stroke. And I like to use an analogy that the battery in my brain is smaller and it drains much faster than somebody without a brain injury. And something that I can do fairly easily at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, I can't. And as we've discussed, I was a nurse, so I went sometimes 24 plus hours without sleep. But with neurofatigue, when I'm done, I'm done. I can't fight it. And several things start to happen when neurofatigue sets in. All of my deficits become more pronounced. My comprehension starts to go. So my husband and I will be watching TV and I'll have to say to him, well, can you pause the show? I'm completely lost. I don't understand what's happening. Uh, I have trouble putting my thoughts into words. And so even having a basic conversation becomes a struggle. If we were doing this conversation later in the day, I would be struggling very much right now. My balance starts to go and I've actually had a few falls when I tried to touch it too far. Uh, my left side starts to give me attitude, which is my affected side, so I'll start to limp. Um, the oh, I get overwhelmed more easily, so everything that's coming at my brain from my eyes, my ears, I can't sort that out. I get overwhelmed, and then I start to lose control of my emotions. I'll start to cry, and eventually it gets to the point where I really can't even function. And my husband recognizes it because... I'm a type A personality and I tend to like to push myself and he'll be, hon, you need to go lay down for a few minutes. And so I have to go lay down and just let my brain rest and recharge. So one of the things that, uh, that I know is that you, you've, um, you've read a book called keeping your glass from overflowing. Is that correct? That's, that's one of the, the um, tip boxes inside of the book. Uh, just pick up the peg. And so, um, so in the, so I think it says that it applies to just anyone, not just necessarily, you know, stroke survivors. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the tip box, about keeping Absolutely. your from overflowing? Absolutely. So we all deal with frustration. We all deal with frustration. So it's an analogy, again, that I like to use because it kind of makes it easier for people to understand. So we have our glass. And we get up in the morning and we're trying to get our kids ready for school, for example, and they're fighting and they won't listen to us and our glass starts to fill up. And then we decide we're gonna drive to work and we get stuck in traffic. So our glass fills up a little bit more and we get to work, but we're late. So our glass fills up a little bit more and this continues on our day. And then eventually something happens, say for example, someone cuts us off in traffic and our glass overflows. 
And what happens? Our frustration then becomes anger. And suddenly we're in our car, we're a maniac, we're yelling and screaming at this person who has just cut us off because our frustration glass has overflowed. And so what I had to learn, because when I first came home from the hospital and I was trying to do things and deal with my deficit, my frustration glass would overflow several times a day and I'd be yelling and screaming and crying because frustration and anger, they tend to hang out together. So what I had to learn was, first of all, how to empty some water out of my frustration glass. And it's different for everyone. For me, it's sitting down and reading, just sitting outside, listening to the birds sing, meditation, listening to music, watching a funny movie. When I was working, we would go for walks on our lunch break and we'd end up laughing because we were all dealing with the same frustrations. So for everyone, you need to maybe try experimenting with different things that help you to dump some water out of your frustration glass. And the other thing is to be more aware of how you're feeling. And so you can start to recognize when your frustration glass is getting really close to overflowing and then try and use one of the things you find or have found that's helpful to release some of that water out of your glass. So is, is, is doing the book helped you enormously? It has. And I mean, I could have never dreamt in a million years that I would ever co-author a book. I barely I barely passed high school English, but <laughs> it was it was very good because as I was writing it and talking about my journey in the beginning, it made me realize how far I've come. And I was also able to um, use the book to spread awareness about many of the unseen challenges that stroke survivors face. And despite the fact that every stroke is different and everyone's journey is different, I found that many of the unseen challenges that we face are very, very similar. And so to be able to share some of the strategies I've learned for coping and also to bring awareness to non-stroke survivors of some of the things that you may not see that we are struggling with. So what's your life look like today? We talked about the before. Let's talk about mm -hmm. the, the current. What are you doing today? My life today is not even remotely close to what I had mapped out for myself because we all kind of try and plan what we think our futures were going to look like. I was going to work as a nurse until I was 55 and then I was going to retire, but none of that happened. And for a long time after my stroke, I kept saying, I just want my old life back. Well, eventually I had to realize after going through the grief process that unfortunately that was never going to happen and trust that I'm still here. There had to be a reason. Uh, so I started working out to try and improve some of the deficits and I ended up developing a passion for fitness and eventually my husband also did and so now we, we call it, we're gym buddies <laughs> and so we work out uh, quite regularly at the gym and physically I'm in probably better shape now than I've ever been we both are um, I volunteer for heart and stroke and I also volunteered at the hospital where I had worked as a nurse in a, in a program called peers fostering hope in which stroke survivors go in and mentor and speak with stroke patients um, encourage them hopefully inspire them, answer some questions. Uh, I have the book, obviously, that uh, I co-authored, and I'm also currently writing a monthly blog for Psychology Today online. Uh, I actually just recently started working four hours a week at the gym I go to, 
So even though my life is way off track of where I <laughs> thought it would be, it's it's rich, it's fulfilling, and it's okay. Perfect, perfect. So how does someone get the book? The book is available online on Amazon. It's probably your best bet for getting it. Okay, and you have a website, Angie? I do have a website. It's all small letters, angiecollinsburke.com. There, there are links to the blogs that we've written. There's links to the book's Facebook page and any of my social medias there. Um, there's links to where you can purchase the book. There's some videos that I've done. So there's a whole variety of things that you can see on the website. Perfect. And so it's been a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to, to hearing more about the, the amazing and new things you're going to be doing in the future that you never thought you might be doing. And, um, and so and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and giving, you know, other people that have, you know, maybe a loved ones that have had strokes or something similar, you know, uh, possibilities and, um, and help and advice and all those things that are, are very crucial when you're going through a crisis. And so I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you again for having me. It was an honor. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice. 